Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another show. And today, Cody, it is all about the conference finals. The game ones have arrived. Of course, as I say this, people from the future will be listening in a day or two, and it'll, we'll, it'll be like three games down the road, and everything we're going to say is going to sound ridiculous. So um, let's get right to it. How ridiculous can we be today? We've got the Eastern Conference Finals. As of recording this, Game two's coming up later tonight. Um, Western Conference Finals wrapped last night. Where do you want to begin? Uh, let's start with the East. Let's start with the East. Okay. So Miami Heat, Boston Celtics. Um, my takeaway from that game was I would still feel pretty good if I was the Celtics, but not if I can't get Al Horford and Marcus Smart back pretty soon in the series. I don't know how many more games they can survive without them because there's two big things. One, the defense is obvious. We've talked about it quite a bit. Um, Horford's been fantastic this season, especially in the playoffs. And then Smart winning Defensive Player of the Year, whether he technically is their best defender or whatever, he's really important. He's probably their most versatile defender. Um, They're missing them on both ends. But then even on offense, which may be a little surprising to people, they both are kind of ballasts, right? They're like forces that help steady the offense. Marcus Smart with his playmaking from the point guard position. We talked about that in the last episode being critical. And even Horford, sort of top of the key, elbow, veteran presence. Yes, Rob Williams can pass, but it's a little different when you have Horford and Smart out there. Yeah, and that's really what I think makes the Celtics work so well on offenses. You know, you have Derek White who comes in, and we saw struggles going back to the last series with his just being left open at times like the Bucks were like please shoot the basketball but he can at least go in and stir the drink a little bit with his passing and Horford and Smart both do that same thing and Horford is uh would you say by far their best big man passer like I don't even think it's really close when you look at the other big men that what they have and when you have that sort of inside outside passing and you're missing that element that takes a lot of dynamic energy that they have on offense Yeah, I don't even know if it's by far anymore because Rob Williams does make some passes really well. He actually had a really nice one uh, from the top of the key, as as he's prone to do in game one. But it's also it's it's the combination of that with the decision making, right, with just, hey, this possession's going haywire. Let me take a really quick big dribble handoff to the other side and try to get something flowing for Jalen Brown, for Marcus Smart, Derek White, whoever is the other like wing guard that can do something on this side of the court. So I think it's a little stuff like that uh, beyond just the, the, I mean, Horford's been a good big man passer for years beyond just the passing. Yeah, and I think along with that, too, is it just forces the Celtics to go a lot smaller. Like, we saw a good amount of, of Neesmith minutes, and let's let's talk about Neesmith soon here. Let's talk about Neesmith, but they they just didn't have the bigs to rotate out like their, their multi-big lineups. Like, Jason Tatum effectively had to be power forward for most of the game, which is totally fine, but I think their defense is, really works the best when he slots down to the three, and they have, like, the three big man rim-protecting nightmares of lineups, and just having Rob Will and Daniel Tice being the only legitimate big men, uh, I, th- I think that's that that's tough for the Celtics. Well, the reason why I honed in on those two guys and also on offense is because the third quarter in the game, I mean, it's a little arbitrary, right? Like some of the Celtics were saying after the game, they only lost one quarter. But that's a that's a little arbitrary. <laughs> um, you know, it's not normal to have like five or six pick six turnovers in, in one quarter that they have. And that's why I landed on that because... 
Boston's inability to sometimes just make basic passes or have alternative playmaking setups, um, the Heat really took advantage of that. So in a way, not even in a way, I think the star of the game and the big takeaway and the big winner from game one was Miami's defense, specifically their their hands. Um, I mean, G- Gabe, Gabe Vincent, Vincent alone had like two or three plays at the rim where he he basically just stole a layup. Um, one of them was a gorgeous late switch, kind of like a what you might call like a veer back or peel switch at the last second where he was on the ball, there was penetration. I think it was Bam who comes over to contest and Vincent kind of falls back as he's, you know, jumping to contest, turns around and just rips it from the Celtics big who got a lay down pass for a layup. He did that two or three times. There was a sequence where Jimmy Butler was just like, I'm Deion Sanders. Anytime you throw a pass near me, I'm going to intercept it and run the other way and high step my way in for two. Uh, And all that combined with the way Miami's been playing the passing lanes in the playoffs, really gapping in hard, shrinking the floor. Uh, They just did all of this at once in the third quarter. And and to quote Mike Breen, it was an avalanche. Yeah, I think I think it was two plays that Vincent had that strip on Robert Williams in the paint. And that's I call that kind of Chris Paul rim protection. Like it's the way that like a smaller guy can get some rim protection because Gabe Vincent, Chris Paul, these guys aren't big enough to actually get up there and contest at the rim. But if you're able to get down there quick enough and even prevent the big man from shooting or I I don't know if that counts as a steal or a block. I'm not interested in that. It's all rim protection in my mind. But um, even like Paul Millsap, like as a big man, he kind of had those quick hands down underneath the, the basket. But Gabe Vincent, man like yeah I'm, I'm so glad you called him out because those two plays really stood out to me and uh jimmy butler you called out the the couple of pick sixes i think he had like two straight almost like he had a pick six followed yeah. by like sort of like a one-on-one finish and transition and once you get like you know when you get the steal that necessarily means that the other team scored zero points in that possession and if you get a pick six that's like what an offensive rating of very high. It's very high. Yeah. Extraordinarily <laughs> high. So, like, that's literally the most efficient and best play that you can get in, in basketball. And they had, like, multiple of them going on in that third quarter. It, it It's seriously a home run on defense. They had many. I mean, Victor Oladipo stripped Tatum, I think, at one point in the backcourt. And the other big sort of thought that I want to bring up about the Miami defense is I mentioned I mentioned they're shrinking the court and stuff like that. They get in the passing lanes really well. And then there's a second part of that story. They rotate with so much speed and ferocity. Um, And there may be a video coming on this as the series unfolds. We'll see what happens with health and how the games play out. But I noticed that a little bit in the previous rounds, and especially in that third quarter, but it it was present earlier in the game in the second quarter too. Their ability to kind of cheat up a step or two or three and then once they get in rotation, man, they're like one of those unbelievable college teams that's way more athletic than like the the mid-major that they're playing or something with all these blue chip prospects. They are so good at playing the horizontal game, as Bill Russell would call it. And again, that's where I thought the Celtics not having Harf- Horford and Smart, who are maybe their best extra passers, 
as playmakers, and then that transfers more responsibility to Jalen Brown. And Jalen Brown, of course, is weaker in that department. And there was at least one or two times in the game, Tatum did it as well, where instead of playing that kind of basketball, stick, move, cut, motion, um, you know, some some action you're running, instead, you put it on the deck, you take an extra dribble or two. I commend guys for taking those dribbles into the gaps. I call it the gap dribble. I think it's a big deal. But when your handle isn't very tight like Jalen Brown and your passing vision isn't very good, it leads to deflections and turnovers. Uh, and, and Miami, you know, th- that that was basically the difference in the game. The rest of the game, the Celtics played pretty well. They looked great in the first quarter. Um, you know, Miami was solid the rest of the game. But that that stretch and that element to me was the difference. What do you think most contributes to Miami being so dynamic with that horizontal defense? Do you think, like, most of it is the fact that Bam Adebayo is their center and he's just maybe the best horizontal big man in the game right now? Do you think that they're just more on a string than other teams? Like, what what is it that you think most contributes? I do not think he's the most horizontal big in the game. I think that guy is in the other series. We'll, we'll talk about that in a second. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think it's a combination of having guys like Bam as your bigs. I think they are well-coached and coached to rotate and move with a purpose, right? Like, with with passion it's 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 intense you got to sprint and you have to understand what you're doing because you need to know where to go you can't aimlessly sprint some of the worst things that happen defensively in basketball are when two or or goodness forbid three people rotate to one guy so you need to know what you're doing and then the personnel they have not just with bam but one through five one through four um they're horizontal like pj tucker's you know, PJ Tucker plays a big these days, but Pete, when we were growing up, Cody, I mean, PJ, PJ Tucker's like six, five, he's like a two or a three. Yeah. So you fill the court with bam, PJ Tucker, Gabe Vincent, Jimmy Butler, who's long and, and can do it. Um, and, uh, and it just creates this amoeba effect where the defense gets in rotation, but if you're not really punishing them, if you're not really making the right pass, you barely get an advantage because they can recover so quickly. And emphasis on this right pass thing, because I think this there's there's a play that I think illustrated them missing Horford and Smart so well is there there's one point in that third quarter where Tatum dribbles into the corner and I think it's it's Struce, uh I don't know who else, maybe Butler and Struce that's not true. Struce and someone else double Tatum in the corner. Uh, Grant Williams pops up to the top of the perimeter, and they pass to Grant Williams, and Jimmy Butler goes to rotate to him and Over on the left wing, on the other wing, weak side wing, is Jalen Brown just standing there like, I am so ready for this catch and shoot three. And Grant Williams is like, nope, I think I'm going to try and attack off this dribble. And Brown like stands there with like the exaggerated like, I got this, I got this, I got this. And then I think Bam rejects him at the rim. So taking advantage of the fact that the Celtics don't necessarily have strong creators like you were saying with the gap dribble before and not always making the right pass. You know, um... That play jumped out to me as well. It was 8.20 left in the third, if anyone wants to go back and rewatch it. Basically, the the other thing that jumped out to me, and I'm glad you saw it, Jalen Brown has a habit of holding his hands there incredulously, like waiting for the pass once the moment moves along, like once once the pass isn't immediately made. And to your point, yeah, against this defense, you have to make that pass. Um, looking at the play again, you have Struess coming off the corner with two on Tatum, and he's making a beeline to Jalen Brown. But if he doesn't get there, Gabe Vincent's coming off the other corner, 
making a beeline to Jalen Brown. So it's like if you're not quick with those extra passes against the Heat, you're not going to capitalize on that. Uh, back to my point about Jalen, holding your hands there, and you see this when we get to Golden State, that actually is a negative basketball play to me because once the pass isn't made, you can still cut. You can still fill in behind somebody. But when you stand out there incredulously and you're like, oh, the ball never made it to me. I'm just going to hold this pose. You basically take yourself out of the play. You, you no longer become a weapon. And you even, in a sense, let these kind of rotating defenses off the hook. So it's a, it's a subtle thing. Um, it doesn't happen that often. But I've noticed with him, other players do it. But with him, he does it on these kinds of plays. And as we'll get to with Golden State, it's a lot easier to guard in rotation in the NBA when someone just stands there. It's almost the equivalent of staying back to argue with a ref. Like you're just yeah. you're giving the other team just like a second where you're where you're not moving basically. And this is a game where constant movement. We keep teasing this other series. We'll get to it in a second. And <laughs> uh, constant movement is just so necessary when you get to such high level basketball like this. So uh, based on everything you saw though, like what do you do? You have like a glimmer of hope for. That's not even the right way to say it. What do you think the best takeaway is if you're a Boston Celtics fan? Like, is there any nugget of like, okay, if you hold on to this, you're actually not looking as bad as you think you might be? I actually am not sure there's much to take away with the Celtics. As I said, other than if their guys don't play, then I do think it's going to be an uphill battle. I don't think it's impossible for them to win the series, but they can only go so many games without one or certainly both of those guys. It's one of those things where them being out in game one on the road is probably the right uh, location for them to miss the games. If you miss the games at home and all of a sudden you become very vulnerable at home, you know, losing, losing home serve like that can be a big deal. So in a sense, especially once Miami uh, didn't let the game get away from them at the beginning, I thought Miami kind of had to come out and win game one. It would, it would have been, it would have been a serious issue because I think the heat um, healthy, full strength, I don't think they are as good as the Celtics. Doesn't mean they can't win the series straight up. But if that's the predicament and then you're down those two guys and you're at home, uh, at a certain point, I just thought they had to win game one. So I'm not sure there's big takeaways other than the fact that now you're one game closer. They only need to win three. The Celtics need to win four. And game two is tonight, and most people will be listening to this uh, after this. So we could play a little choose-your-own-adventure. If it's 2 nothing with a similar game, then it gets really fun because the Celtics are going to have, what, four of the, sorry, three of the remaining five potential games in the series at home, including two in a row. Uh, again, in theory, if they get healthier, I would think they would be favorites in those games, but they're still down to nothing. So then they kind of go into must-win mode um, and, and they can only you know trip up one more time. If it's split, if it's 1-1, then I would say I feel pretty good as Boston to go down there under these situation under under these circumstances and come home with a split and and nab sort of um, serve from the heat. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to sixty percent on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
and maybe this is like super overreaction because it's based on one quarter, but I apologize to my Boston friends. I posted to a couple Boston friends like after the first quarter. I'm like, congrats on making it to the finals, guys. And then the rest of the game happened. But honestly, like at the beginning of the game, I was shocked. Like the Celtics were waltzing to the rim. Let me let me throw out some numbers for you because this blew me away. Uh, this is this is like a little whiplash, right? From going from the Buck series with the Twin Towers to the way the Heat defend and and like Bam is still a really good rim protector, but more stretched out defense, uh, slightly different approach to defense. It's a little different than Lopez just sitting in the paint and Giannis lurking on the edge of the paint. So so what do you got for these stats? Well, first of all, Bam's a good rim protector, but the way that he plays defense, he's not always by the rim. And they certainly don't have a back, like a help side rim protector like Giannis hiding back there. So there's a couple la- layers to this. I think this is from game seven, okay? The lowest amount of rim field goal attempts that the Celtics took against the Bucks was, I think, game seven. They took 10 in the entire game. They took 10 rim field goal attempts. Do you know how many t- they took... In the first quarter against the Heat? I'm going to say 10. The answer is 10. Ben, do you know how many they took in the second quarter against the Heat? No, how, how many did they take in the second quarter? They took 10, Ben. <laughs> so they took 10 in the first quarter. They took 10 in the second quarter, already doubling the amount of rim field goal attempts they had against the Bucks. The most rim field goal attempts they had against the Bucks in any game was 23. Four of them were fewer than 20. And in this game mm. against the Heat, they had 30. I'm pretty sure it was 32. I'm looking at it right now. 32 rim field goal attempts. So if there's one thing that I just can't shake, I'm like, even without Smart, even without Horford, they still started off being able to get into the paint more than I've seen in basically any other series so far. Anything else in this series, or do you want to go to the Western Conference where uh, Golden State's up 1-0? Let's talk about the Western Conference. Okay, so um, there is a video out on this game on the Thinking Basketball YouTube channel, I will, just for the purpose of this conversation, to couch it, just sort of provide similar high-level notes um, that we can riff off of. I thought you kind of, as we, dis- as we discussed, as we expected, the series is going to look totally different than both Golden State playing Memphis. Yeah, remember heading into that series, we were talking about how Memphis-Minnesota is different than what Memphis brings against the Warriors. Length, size, speed, athleticism. They In all the regular season games, I think the play-in game, I think all six games in the last series, they just get their hands on a lot of balls for the Warriors. And the Warriors, we know, have turnover issues. Sometimes they like to play right on the edge. By the way, I think Golden State gets too much flack for their turnovers. There are times where, yes, they go too far, and you don't want careless turnovers. But they're a team that seems to me to be optimizing by playing on that edge. And I've talked about this with Steve Nash versus someone like Chris Paul or aggressive passers versus conservative passers. You're trying to find a balance where if you were to take away the edge that they play on, right? And when, by edge, I mean it can, it can go either way. They're, they're dancing on the head of a, of a pin. Um, then you would lose all those high-value home run plays they hit. And so you have to be willing to live with some of the poor passes and some of the mistakes and the over-aggression. Like, 10 times the guys get out in transition, whether it's Draymond, Steph, whoever, pushes hard and tries to make an outlet or a bounce pass. You hit eight of those and you throw two in the stands, that's, that's worth it, in my opinion. 
um, versus just not ever throwing them. You won't see those turnovers. But not only do you not get the eight possessions where you succeed, but you don't get the eight, you don't get the meta value of pressuring the defense constantly like that. And I think that's in their DNA. I think that's what makes them uh, so difficult to guard. That's really interesting so, because I think you're right in the sense that like Draymond and Curry are so good at playing on that edge. Whereas like if you go back to the other series, like Jalen Brown, guys like that, Robert, I mean uh, Grant Williams, these are guys that are not able to push it too much more, especially without again smarter Horford out. Guys that might be able to dance on that edge. Smart definitely can dance on that edge a little bit more. And without that, like they kind of have to play at their own methodical pace. And I think when it comes to the turnovers, though, like Steph Curry. I, I don't know if you have a turnovers per uh, behind-the-back passes per 75 possessions <laughs> like that, but if you did, Steph Curry would easily lead NBA history on that stat. Yeah, yeah. Steph Curry in particular with uh, careless turnovers on behind-the-back passes. So those are the ones that I think you could, you know, maybe dial those back a little bit. Yeah. But the the general idea, I also think this is why Jordan Poole fits with this team. Jordan Poole basically plays on the edge. And what you don't want to do with him, in my assessment, they haven't done it this year, and I don't think they'll do it going forward, is you don't want to really rein him in too much. You don't want to dial him in. You want to let him. We saw it in game one where he had, I think, two sort of brilliant footwork moves and a third one that was just a hilarious travel where he took a he took like a hop step into the lane yep. and then tried like a little shuffle up and under and like a step through. You can't do you can't do a shuffle and a hop step <laughs> and then a step through. That's too many moves. Each individual move isn't a travel, but when you do all three in a row, then you have a coordinated dance. You're on Dancing with the Stars. Um, anyway, what were we talking about, Cody? Rain, rain me in. We're, I have no idea where I'm going. So Dancing on the Edge, actually, I think another person that fits in really well, and he showcased this pretty solidly, is Steve Kerr. And I think this is where Steve Kerr gets value as a coach, especially with this group, because I think he likes coaching on the edge a little bit. Like, I think he likes just throwing things out there and seeing how it works. During that first quarter, like, at one point, first of all, shout out Stan Van Gundy for just, like, picking things out in real time. At one point, he was like, oh, they're in a box at one. And I, like, rewound it, and I'm like how could you even tell? Like, they're all kind of in the same realm as someone. And I, I, I wasn't even able to see it until the next possession where I'm like, okay, they're still in that box in one. They tried a 3-2 zone. They went back to man. Like, this is all in the first quarter. Like, Coaches, we, we throw yeah. like four different defensive schemes in the first quarter. And again, dancing on the edge, Steve Kerr's like, let's just throw it all out there right away and just cause mass chaos. Yeah, I remember where I was going, how each series looks different. So not only is not only is this series different um, from the Golden State perspective with Memphis not being on the other side, but we talked a ton in the second round about Dallas and about Phoenix and about their scheme. And, and the anticipation was you, you can't do that against Golden State. And I would say the Mavericks got whiplash. I, I would say that going from one system, and I discussed this in the video where you can really tighten the screws by loading up. It's a little similar. Uh, it's similar in a way to what happened with Boston and Brooklyn. The Suns aren't as stationary as Brooklyn's offense was in the playoffs this year, per se. But when you're running spread, pick, and roll, or you have a lot of spot-up concepts, or another thing Phoenix likes to do is they'll have two shooters on the weak side spotting up, and they'll exchange them. So it's kind of like dummy movement. It's designed to you know make a weak side defender think or something like that. But the reality is... No one's cutting through. No one's running into the paint and hooking arms with their teammate and spinning around in a circle and then coming back out on the other side and getting a handoff and then running back in and crossing pass again and then getting another handoff and then slipping it to a guy who's then cutting it to a guy who had a backdoor screen. Like, 
I just described like half of a warrior's play. That's it. That's the difference. And so we, I think on that side of the court, it's a different thing. The interesting dynamic for me that really jumped out from game one was on the defensive side. And if I were a Warriors fan, I would feel good about game one for two big reasons. One, uh, Kavon Looney. I thought he held up very well. Dallas was still able, like, I actually think Dallas had decent offense in this game. I think they'll be able to be competitive with their offense. The real question for me is how, how much extra can they get from the offense? And then over the course of the series, how successful can they be defensively by game four or five? That's the real question. But against Looney, we've had Luka Doncic go after Aiton. We've had Luka Doncic go after Gobert. We've had Luka Doncic go after Whiteside. It doesn't matter. If you're a five out there in the last two series, we've seen some traditional fives. JaVale McGee, Bismarck Biombo. Looney is a smaller guy. He's way more pliable than people realize. Like, he was out on Doncic at the logo. He's like, let's go. He's like, you and I are about the same size, bro. He's like, we move at about the same speed. Let's, let's do this. And again, I think Dallas on those actions and some of the other switches they targeted, they were able to generate good shots, especially in the first half. They had three or four really nice looks that, you know, you're usually not going to miss all of them. You make a couple of those. But for Looney to be able to hold up and stay on the court and give them that option for 15 to 28 minutes a night, I thought that was a big takeaway. I didn't really see anything. Dallas in the third quarter got the switch on Looney after a timeout and then made an adjustment by trying to screen Looney. Like they're like, okay, just getting him in isolation isn't good enough. Now we have him in isolation. Let's put him in like a big, big screen or something uh, and see how they handle that. That didn't work. Wiggins did a good job on Luke. I mean, Wiggins' strength, in my opinion, is his man defense out on the perimeter against these big wings. Just, just excellent all season. And then finally, Steph Curry, that's the other guy they want to target. Um, Cody, not only not only were they not able to really target him successfully, they actually stopped as the game went on because Poole was the guy that they had plenty of success with. So why not go after Poole? But he doesn't play 40 minutes and he's not the engine of the offense. They go after Steph Curry, uh, Golden State, because of the help system, because of Draymond Green, because of these other guys, holds up. And then... In addition to this, Steph Curry has like a fantastic defensive game with communicating, uh, help defense, making plays when they try to attack him. Uh, he, he held up much better than some of the other defenders. Like those were really promising signs from the Golden State side that I'm interested to see by game three or game four. Do the Mavs find a way to expose that and actually make that an advantage for them? Or is that just off the table now for the rest of the series? Yeah, the thing I noticed when it came to the mismatch and mismatch hunting of Luka and Brunson and those guys is it seems like they were actually okay with giving up the loony switch. Like they were like, okay, we're going to give you this switch and you can take them. But when it came to Poole and Curry, at least like earlier on in the game, uh, I didn't watch like super closely later on to see if that if there was an adjustment, but it seemed like they were more hard hedging and recovering when they were trying to get Curry and Poole in those actions. And it seemed like Bullock or Finney Smith or whoever was guarding the ball handler was able to get back into position. And I felt like that kind of stagnated the Mavs offense is it was like Luca's expecting to get the Curry matchup and all of a sudden, nope, it's actually still Bullock here or Brunson was expecting to get him and like, nope, I, I did see with Dinwiddie, they were more apt to give up the switch, but I thought they protected those two while Curry did have a good game I thought they protected them well with their hard hedging and recovering yeah the the hard hedge and recover worked well it worked well because of guys like Draymond behind the play 
this goes back to where that the Warriors were uh, in the fall when we did that deep dive video on how historically strong their defense was looking. The communication of the players, the trust, the identification. Like, Draymond is not only a backline defender, but there were a handful of plays last night where, you know, Poole's running around and he's, and he's got the wrong assignment and Curry yells at him, like, you got to rotate over there. Uh, Curry got Kavon Looney a block. Kavon Looney went the wrong way. He tells... Kevon Looney to rotate over here. So these things make it sort of more viable for the Warriors to to just go into a series and say, this is going to be our scheme, right? We know we have a switch hunting 6-8 uh, sort of plotting offensive god. Like he's just going to back you down and do what he wants. We're going to avoid that at the top by playing this hard hedging. And then he's so good, um, we're going to see more of it as the series goes on, as as Luca, I think, adapts to some of the tendencies. I definitely expect in, in game two or three for him to have more success. But you get a cat and mouse game last night with the skip passes because the defense hugs in, they overload, and Luca's like, oh, I have a I have a pass to the opposite corner. But ho- wait, is, is, that, is that Draymond Green sitting there looking at me, waiting for me to to make this pass, maybe I'm not going to make that pass. So what ends up happening last night, at least, is when they've got the two or three engines on the court, when they've got Brunson and Luca and Dinwiddie, Poole's still got to match up with one of them. So it wasn't switch hunting. They were like, okay, whoever's pool, whoever Poole's guarding, we'll just go to that guy. Um, and maybe you'll probably see something more like that with Poole versus the put him in pick and roll so i think that's what's really going to be interesting to watch for is with the mavericks like we've talked about all of these different things that the warriors did to adapt in game right so it's not just like one thing that they're responding to there's a lot of different things they're responding to and i think ben this is a as an appropriate time as ever to wax poetic about draymond green to just to just build a statue of this man. Now, I, I'm going to cite myself from the last podcast. One thing that I said that the Warriors would be able to do that the Suns struggle to do more so, something that Aiton would struggle with, is uh, if you load up strong side, they would be able to recover out to a shooter on the weak side a lot quicker. And there's one play at the end of the first quarter where Draymond Green loads up strong side, and not only does he recover to the weak side corner for the contest after Nilakina screens his own man, Curry. But Draymond Green recovers quickly enough to straight up block the three-point attempt. That recovery speed, after coming over to defend on the strong side, is whatever tier levels of defensive plays you can have, that's at the top. That blew my mind when I saw that. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm now thinking about why there isn't a compilation of the greatest defensive plays in NBA history, because that is a top tier 
all-time defensive play. And some of these defensive plays, it's not just about a fancy steal or a fancy block. It's about the read, the recovery, the context, the the kind of defensive plays to me that you just look at it and you're like, oh, no one else can make that play. Um, maybe historically there are some guys that can approximate a play like that. But to your point about going from series to series or what to expect here, we've now a couple times talked about skip passes and changing sides. The amazing thing about that play to me, um, Draymond is sitting there in help position waiting for Luca to come, but he's also, I think, kind of almost turned his hips and his feet, like waiting to take off. He's like baiting him into throwing it to the corner, and you wouldn't even think it's his rotation. That's what's so insane about the play. There was another Golden State defender on the weak side in between Draymond and the corner, and Draymond's like, boy, let's see. I've got Luca here in help. He's got a step on the ball. I wonder when he's going to throw this pass to the corner. Let's see if I can get him to throw it to the corner so I can go 30 feet and block the shot. Yeah, and, you know, I'm trying to think of, like, how you could categorize, like, the best defensive plays ever. And just the way I think about it is, like, how possible is that to actually do? Like, when I think about playing basketball, like, could you feasibly do that? Like, if you take any aspect of that, any part of that play, and just be like, go do this in your pickup game in your random adult league, like, you just couldn't. You couldn't do it. And this is a man doing against the best competition in the league. He had another one. It was early on in the game. He was just guarding Jalen Brunson because that's what Draymond Green does. And Brunson gets baseline. And Draymond Green, it's not one of those where he, like, steals it and then throws it off him. He pokes it away from him. And then while it's still kind of loose, he just, like, taps it at him and bounces it out of bounds. And just, just this guy, man, he's, <laughs> he's, he's pointing. He's, like, throwing Wiggins places. He's like, nope, we're switching here. You zone up over there. He's stripping people. He's recovering weak side. Draymond Green is a masterclass unto himself we should we should probably mention that we're 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 so hyped up on playoff basketball here we forgot to mention that in in classic warriors fashion they came out they did start looney and we've talked about him but with draymond they went you're going to guard the small point guard so he guarded brunson and he guarded dinwiddie and the crazy thing about this and i've i've only seen the game twice um I don't know if I have time to watch it again because it just doesn't even compute. The man made all these help plays, but then also with the exception of a couple times that Jalen Brunson got him, and let's be honest, uh, Jalen Brunson cooks anybody, anytime, anywhere. Um, he spent the rest of the game shutting down Brunson and Dinwiddie. So basically the plan was, Draymond, you're still going to be the free safety help quarterback that orchestrates all of our sort of protection for the switch hunting, for the vulnerabilities, for our breakdowns. But also, somehow, in addition to that, Dallas has these three on-ball creators, this dual heliocentrism, as we've talked about. You're just going to take one of them off the chessboard. You're just, you're just going to go do that for the entire game you're out there. I don't, it doesn't even make sense to me, Cody. I really don't realize, wh- how did he do that? I, I don't know. No, and, and earlier, when, when, when I brought up BAM, you said that you think there's a better horizontal big man defender. You were talking about Draymond, right? Yeah, uh, that's 100% Draymond. Yeah, 100% yeah. Draymond. Yeah, I don't think he's in he's in a class of his own in in that regard. His his foot his foot speed is um and you saw it on that play we talked about. It it is it's stunning. It's absolutely stunning. There's another one that's in the video that I love where um they're 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 going after the switch hunt with Curry. Luka get gets in, uh, sort of as adjustment. Luka doesn't actually get downhill. Brunson sets the screen, and then Brunson rolls into the paint because they know he's going to hedge, right? So Wiggins is there waiting to recover. Curry jumps out to hedge. 
Luca slips the bounce pass to him, and Draymond just teleports from the wing to step in front of it. And as he's teleporting, points to Curry, and he's like, you just peel switch back to my guy. And so this thing against normal defenses that would either be a layup or put the defense in rotation against the Warriors, it's nothing. And four seconds later, Dinwiddie's completely stuck in the corner, and Clay Thompson absolutely sends his shot right back in his face. Yeah, that. I love the teleporting term. Like when when a player starts like getting to the point where you can only describe them as teleporting, I think that means you're you're a pretty solid defensive player. So we've 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 said a lot of really nice things about the Warriors. Ben, is there anything that concerns you at all about the Warriors in this game? Is there any like where you see that that scale missing on Smog's armor where you might be able to shoot the arrow, the proverbial arrow if you're the Mavericks? Well, I think the interesting thing is I expect Dallas to sort of defend better over time as they see these actions more. So the shots aren't going to be quite as good. And then Steph Curry's shot just doesn't seem to be as good. There's been a lot of debate about this recently. And I think in the live last live Q&A on, on Patreon, patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball, um, we talked about this. I think it's age. I think it's fatigue, running around, um, all this stuff. But... If that happens, I think the concern is there's still a possibility that Dallas can can kind of tighten the screws a little bit more on defense. We don't shoot well because we know we're going to have, I mean, we know we're going to have a game where we're probably like six for 40 from downtown or whatever. This seems to happen every series. And then you got that Luka guy on the other side, and he's, I think, going to figure out the defense more throughout the series. So I wouldn't be concerned. I, as I said, a lot of optimism on that side from game one. Um, but I also wouldn't be, you know, feeling, you know, what do they say? Counting your chickens before they hatch. I wouldn't be doing that. I like that. I think is that, a, is that expression still used in the 21st century? I think it's ca- counting your eggs before they hatch. I don't know about you, but I've never met a chicken that hatched before. No, I, that's, that's, that's the purpose of the expression code. Hatch. You count the chickens before the eggs hatch. <laughs> All right, let's, Let's move on. Okay, we've we've done we've done one game in each series. Um, we're about to do a second game. How are how are you feeling right now about both the East and the West? So I went into both series where I thought the Celtics were taking the East. I thought the Warriors were taking the West. I still I think I've, I'm still feeling pretty confident about both of those picks. Like I said, I can't I can't quit I can't quit the rim field goal attempt numbers from the Celtics. It really took a second for the Heat to get into whatever it is that we're doing. And I don't know if they just caught lightning in a bottle defensively, but like an NBA team isn't going to play defense like that for an entire game, for an entire series. So I'm interested to see if they're able to capture that again at any point uh, during game two. And then with the Warriors, I, I, I don't know. I think I feel like that was a more troubling game for the Mavericks than you think. Like I'm watching that. And I'm like, there's so much going on offensively and defensively from the Warriors that I don't necessarily know how you can truly adjust except for just being like, man, Luca, like time to do some unholy stuff right now. Like, I don't know whatever it is you need to do, but you need to figure it all out. I think on that series for me, I want to see what happens probably in the first half of game three. Um, I think I think the Mavericks could potentially fade even another double-digit loss on the road. It's really about how they start to adapt over the course of the series for me, both offensively and defensively. Um, on the Eastern side, yeah, I'm I'm still feeling pretty good. If I'm the Celtics, I would. I I it depends on who plays in Game Two and Game Three. Um, but if the Celtics come back and they're healthy 
And then the thing I'm really looking for is Miami showing half-court scoring punch because the other thing about that defensive avalanche is that it got them out in transition for all these easy layups, yep. layup after layup after layup after layup. Uh, and I think my bold prediction on that series, again, assuming we start to get some some guys back here in terms of Smart and Horford and players like that, my bold prediction is that will probably be Miami's highest offensive rating in the series, and and that will be Jimmy Butler's best I don't know if it's best overall game, but certainly his best scoring game of the series. If we come out in game two uh, and I get egg on my face and that looks totally different, then I would start to start to change how I feel. Yeah, definitely. I feel like game ones, there's always some weird stuff what happens with game ones because I, I don't know. Even in these playoffs, there's so many weird takes that people have taken. So I'm going to wait for game two to really adjust things. So I'm keeping things pretty much about where I, I started the series. Is there anything else we need to discuss or were supposed to discuss or has anything else happened? Um, I feel like when you get to the conference finals and you do this every other day thing, like time stops and I'm, I'm just in a cave watching, watching game after game from one day to the next. We're going to go from this podcast right into another game. Yeah. Uh, oh, I, man, Neesmith's defense. We didn't actually talk about that. Oh, Neesmith's defense. Yeah. He, well, he's, 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 there, he's there for a reason, to be their eighth best defender. he had one possession where like hero was like coming off like a stagger screen right and he was just glued to him like i'm talking about some of the best screen navigation like ever and blocks his jump shot and that's not even like the best defensive play he made that quarter like at the end of the quarter he's straight i don't even remember who he chased down but he chased someone out he had another rim block man that was that was some inspired defense that man was playing that now you see why the Celtics have him, right? I mean, yeah, that was uh, that was a display, and then of course he he bites on Jimmy Butler's up fake with two seconds left in the quarter, right after. Yeah. I think it was right after one of those blocks or one of those nice plays. So you you always you always get a taste of like the potential, and then the reminder that you have a young player who's who's still trying to kind of learn the ropes. Yeah, and yeah, I think that's all that really stood out for me. I feel like every other topic, I'm like, hmm, this could probably go on for another hour, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna save it for the future. All right, let's wrap it up there. If you uh, want to support the show, head on over to Patreon.com/slash/ThinkingBasketball. Another great way to support the show is to leave a rating and review. I know there's a lot of new listeners out there. Uh, that is just always helps with algorithms and things of this nature that uh, help give the show more sort of publicity wherever you listen to podcasts you can leave a rating or review otherwise check us out patreon.com slash thinking basketball for additional content additional articles uh so on and so forth thanks as always for listening all the way to the end hope you are enjoying the conference finals and of course that you are having a great day